0: Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomez, and I am your host. Today we have Cornell Verdehi-Woodson, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Belonging at Headspace Health. Headspace Health is a leading provider of mental health and well-being solutions, touching the lives of over 100 million people in 190 countries. Through its flagship Headspace brand, they provide mindfulness tools for everyday life, including meditations, sleepcasts mindful movement, and focus exercises. Welcome to the podcast, Cornell.
1: Thank you so much for having me. You you have such a great voice for podcasts. I love it.
0: So soothing. (laughs) Thank you. So just to start off, can you give a little bit of background on yourself and your work at Headspace Health?
1: Yeah, so I started my career in higher education, actually, then made the pivot into tech about four years ago. I've been at Headspace for about two years, really leading the global strategy for how we um, implement diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging across the entire business. Really everything from product to also how our employees experience the workplace as well. So I really have my hands in a lot of different stuff.
0: That's great to understand. And then when we think about what you're doing at Headspace Health and think about sort of what that landscape looks like, oftentimes we hear that it's you need to make a business case for ESG activities, environmental, social, or corporate governance activities. So, my question to you is it harder to make the business call for social issues like DEI without a cultural call to action, or can you do it in that absence?
1: Yeah, you know, I really think that. So when I think of a cultural call to action, to me, that's around sort of the the business, not the business case, but the the case around it being the right thing to do, right? So that that to me is what that means for me. And I think it depends on the leader. There have been companies that I've been at where the social call or the social case for it um, is all they need because they they typically are leaders that lead with their hearts. And so it's easier for them to understand how these things are impacting real life humans. But for leaders who think from a mind standpoint, which usually is connected to a business standpoint, those are the ones you really to help understand how doing this connects to the business and therefore benefits the business in the long run.
0: And that's a really good point that you made. And I think for a lot of people in this field, you often have to tailor the message based on the audience. And when you're talking to senior leaders, as you state, you really have to understand both sort of what drives them and then how do they interpret and encapsulate information? Because you really, and and I've talked to other guests about this too, where you really have to make sure that you know who you're messaging. And a lot of this is sort of, when you think about the business case, I would say it's really not necessarily the business case, but it's the, how do you make it resonate for that person? If someone, you know, professionally grew up in the finance organization, they may care about these issues, but they just don't have the tools to Put it in a way that they're normally making decisions and understanding how that looks. So I think it's important for people, especially in fields where it's not as regulated or amorphous at times, for them to really understand who your audience is and how you can address the concerns, the questions that they may have before they even ask
1: That's such a great point. I mean, I I think it's critical. We do people work. So understanding how people work, how people think, how they feel, what they respond to is the foundation of what we do. You know, for me, it's like being a lawyer. A lawyer goes into the courtroom not just knowing their side of the case. They know their colleague's side of the case as well because they're prepared to respond to it in order to you know, get where they're trying to go.
0: Definitely. And I think one thing sort of leading into that, you know, when we think about the case, Oftentimes, when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion that falls into the larger ESG world, oftentimes the work can be done without an incentive like a carrot or a disincentive like a stick. What have been the most effective ways you found to move leadership to act?
1: Yeah, you know, it's been interesting because like in my experience, there always has to be a carrot and a stick, right? And for me, it's about what happens, how do I benefit from doing this? And also what happens if I don't? And so I haven't had the fortunate experience of, you know, working in spaces where that wasn't necessary. And so for me, the most effective ways has been really painting the picture, giving them the facts, giving them the research, showing them, again, depending on their sort of style of leadership, but not like they leave from the heart or they leave from the mind. That really dictates what research and what information I provide them as to the why. But ultimately, I think some of the biggest things is really showing how it ultimately helps the business's bottom line in terms of brand awareness and also just meeting our goal, company's priorities. So everything that I do is always connected to the company's priorities. But then at the end of the day, our senior leaders, even when they do leave from the heart, they are thinking about that. And so helping them understand how it can benefit and where we can grow based on like, you know, research from McKinsey and Deloitte and things that sort, but also how it might harm us if we're not stepping up and doing the things that we need to do in order to, to show that we're actually trying to create spaces of inclusion and create products that are inclusive of the diverse world that we're trying to attract.
0: So it sounds to me that oftentimes when we're thinking about sort of incentives and disincentives, We're thinking about using that as a way to force action, whereas what you're talking about is really thinking about an incentive or disincentive by showing what inaction looks like. Exactly. But both what inaction and what action can look like. Because I I think there are times where, you know, some
1: action can happen, but it may not be something that is um, appealing to the person of like, "Ah, yeah, I could do that, but that doesn't really matter to me. So it's helped identifying what matters to them and how doing this connects to that.
0: And what have you found as some... Sort of, you talked about this a little bit before, but what are some things that you've noticed that have really resonated with leadership when you've brought it up as a form of? This is the result if you act, or this is the result if you do not act on this DEI sort of activity.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing has been about brand, uh, both employer brands. So how we look to potential talent because every company is talking about innovation and wanting to hire the most creative and innovative people who can help us get to the next level. So how does this you know sort of impact our ability to recruit the top talent? But then also how does this impact not only from a consumer brand perspective, but also from most of the companies I worked for are. B2B companies. So how if other companies are also asking us questions about how we're investing in DEIB and they're using that data to determine whether or not they're going to give us the contract, that's something we've got to be thinking about. Um, so that brand awareness from a consumer standpoint, but also the brand awareness from a potential employee standpoint have been two critical pieces that I usually get people perk up when I bring those up.
0: And it's interesting when you brought up sort of the war for talent and how the DEIB plays a big part of that. I think that I've heard people sort of, their pushback has been, well, with diversity, equity, inclusion, you're making this assumption that because someone comes from a diverse background, that that is inherently going to make the business better. And my sort of response to that, and I'm curious to get your feedback on it, has been not necessarily that that that's the case. But what that does provide is one, it gives you a more holistic view of people coming from different experiences that you would not have had otherwise, if you keep getting the same type of person from the same type of education, the same type of experience, number one. And then number two, as the world changes, as our demographics change in the US and across the world, if we do not have the people in place that can understand the nuances and cultural context in which we're now uh, obligated to operate in, we are missing the boat and we will be out of touch. So I'm just curious to see what your take on that is. could not have said it better. (laughs) If you could see me right now, I was nodding my head
1: like so much every time you, as you were talking, because that, that's exactly it. I just delivered a workshop for a client, um, and, uh, the other day where I talked about the case for this is, has everything to connect to the business because the diversity of our markets. Like We're not just in the US anymore. We're global. And more and more people, the world's middle class has expanded exponentially. So there's money out there to be had. And this is usually when I'm speaking to my business case kind of people. There's money to be had. But if we're not creating the products, creating the processes, creating the systems, creating the brand, the marketing to appeal to them, their money won't be coming to you. It'll be going to the other brands, that does the same thing that you do, but sees them and includes them in everything that they do as they build what they build. And that again, because they already know that, they, they understand diversity within the market, diversity within your, your direct to consumer products. And so speaking that language has been super, super critical to getting folks on board and to really taking it seriously. So that is a, a foundational statement for me every time I'm talking to a senior leader.
0: And we talked a little bit about how that you do use, like you said, certain parameters when thinking about how to frame the argument. But one thing I've noticed, sort of looking at the landscape of ES&G, the environmental has a lot of methodologies and cohesive frameworks, like the carbon footprinting methodology, science-based target initiatives. But on the social and governance, they don't have that, they don't benefit from that same sort of cohesive agreement or frameworks available. Are there any rankings or ratings or frameworks that you see that can help formalize actions of these of social and governance activities in the sort of ESG realm. Yeah, one of the things that again you hit, you you say it so well. You know, I think so. As I mentioned earlier, my
1: background is in higher education, so I was a, a student affairs professional. And student affairs, as a industry or as a field, actually had the same issue that DEIB has right now. That there's no framework. There's no standardized processes and, and sort of quality and standards for how we do what we do, right? Um, and student affairs had that same issue. And it wasn't until they had more developed and established professional organizations that sort of sort of took the industry by by the reins and said, this is how we have to do what we do and that it's research supported, that we started to see a more formalized and set of standards for the field. I think DEIB is actually headed into the same area right that we're we're starting to see these professional organizations pop up that that are beginning to create standards and frameworks for how we do what we do i think the issue is that we are still so new in terms of how we're gaining respect within your organization that that part hasn't come yet. But I think the UN, I forget how long ago they created what what I'm sure you know, the sustainable development goals. And I'm starting to notice and wrapped up in those are your social and governance uh, sort of goals. And so I'm seeing those as a sort of goalposts in which we can sort of achieve and what it looks like in when we've achieved them that as a great foundation, but I think there's more to be done.
0: It's funny that you should mention the UN sustainable development goals because my experience with them has been, yes, they do provide, I think especially for a company that is international, that truly is international, their whole the UN's whole goal is to say we're going to put create these SDGs for nation states to measure and monitor. And then As a sort of a filter to that, what was supposed to happen is that the companies and the companies that uh, work and operate and pay tax in those jurisdictions are then to have requirements that they have a portion of those goals based on some sort of percentage that the government decides. And what I've noticed has been that it's almost the reverse where a lot of companies have gone after and really... Targeted the SDGs as a way to encapsulate the type of social and governance activities that they can do, especially in developing countries or developing economies, and use that. Whereas the nations, the states, where that that were supposed to be taking the lead are kind of secondary. So I, I do see this interesting sort of tension where you have a lot of companies that are saying we need not necessarily regulation, but we need a framework, and this is the closest framework that works. So. We can use this to meet it. But then sometimes when they start to look underneath the hood at some of like, how are you meeting some of these equity goals when it comes to making sure that girls and women have access to education and equality in the workforce, some of that stuff is should be really done at the state level. So it is interesting that you've seen more, seems like companies have been more adherent to the SDGs. Rather than the nations that should be the ones leading.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think because for so long, companies just really, they still, we don't know what to do. They, that's what I hear all the time. We have no idea. And you're right. This is the closest that they have to sort of a, I don't want to say a step one, step two, step three, because there's still some thinking they have to do about in terms of implementing those things and getting there. But it is the closest to a foot, to a, a blueprint for what at least success looks like. And they know that they're going in the, the, the right direction. One of the things that, we're implementing too is a place-based strategy as well. You talked about sort of getting the the local government and the state involved in the development of these things. And that's one of our strategies is we're not just going to go and just do these things as a company, particularly externally. We're going to engage local government and local nonprofit you know, NGOs in the development of this. So we're hoping that our influence as a organization who has a, a brand awareness can influence local government and state to get involved and partner with us to make these
0: things happen. And I think that's a way sort of taking a step back for other people who may be in a similar position or at a similar point in their journey, if not even earlier. I think that's a great takeaway because you have to understand what's available and kind of make that work for your specific circumstance for your company and what's most material, right? Because there's a lot of opportunity to do the right thing, but there's also a lot of opportunity to basically look like you're doing the right thing and not necessarily doing anything. That's right. So I I think it's like you have to be very strong and be when you're thinking about working within an organization, especially a corporation, you have to sort of balance the necessity of being an internal change agent, but also to make sure you're also being almost an auditor to make sure, are we actually doing this? Because- It makes sense for us as an organization. Are we doing this because it's easy? Are we not providing the transparency because we may not look at, the data doesn't make us look as good as we want us, as we should look. I think there's part of that. I know folks like yourself have to sort of balance as well. Yeah, and and something that, that just came up for me as I was listening to you was also about
1: sort of what should we be focusing on as an organization when it comes to ESG? What is in our locus of control to be focusing on? And one of the things I find most companies what causes them to fail with really well-intentioned efforts is they're focusing on things that they have no business focusing on. And I think a lot of companies fear that, like, should we be talking about that? Do Where is our expertise in that? So when we look from a headspace perspective, we think about all the different social issues that, that exists out there. And we think about what is the lens in which we bring to it that gives us the authority to come in and have a perspective on it and really provide some take on it. So I think you're one Hundred percent right, and I think that's a part of the planning process. Because otherwise, when I've seen companies kind of be in spaces where they have no business being in, they fail every single time.
0: Definitely, and thinking about you being sort of um, this internal change agent, I think one of the things you can only do so much by yourself, and you oftentimes have to reach out to different parts of community. So, thinking about sort of the nonprofit sector when you're thinking about informing and being reliant on them to help either achieve or help identify opportunities for the social and governance activities, especially for what you're doing. Can you explain the importance of those nonprofit partners to also sort of walk the walk when you're thinking about forming partnerships or programming with them or even doing research? Because I think sometimes nonprofits often, because their mission may be well-intentioned, how they comport themselves as a Partner or as a business, may not necessarily, those actions may not necessarily align with their mission or with what you're trying to do as a company. And especially at Headspace Health. So I, I just wanted to get some understanding of like, how does that kind of work at in your position?
1: Yeah, I mean, this to me is a really critical part. So one of the things that is really important to us when we think about initiatives to spin up and, and, and engagements and partnerships, is it sustainable? Meaning once we're gone or if Headspace Health ceased to exist... Could the initiative and, and the impact continue on? And so, the, the one, that's the impetus for why we partner with nonprofit organizations within the communities in which we're trying to support, because, one, they're most on the ground. They're going to be there much longer than we are. So it helps us make sure it, it is sustained in that community. However, if they are not actually, their actions and behaviors and how they go about doing their work isn't aligned with the mission, that impacts the sustainability of it all. So when we're thinking about partners, we're looking at history of and we're doing our research on those organizations to get a sense of are you doing or how you're doing what you do? Does it align with the things you say that you're trying to achieve? And that helps us determine where we actually go, who we go into business with. At the end of the day, our goal is to make sure that the work that we're doing is sustainable, that even after we're gone that you know whatever communities we're seeking to support they're still getting the benefit from what we were ho- ho- hoping to actually implement and make long lasting
0: yeah that takes me back to when i was working on creating a digital inclusion program at at a company i was working at and the vetting we had to do for a few uh, third party partners who the larger ones had systems in place had really strong programming and they had the resources that we could basically know that, to your point, if we were to step out, they could fill that void because we don't have unlimited amount of nonprofit research or or people who understood this digital inclusion in Canada, in, in India. They had those resources that we could leverage, but they also had systems in place that reflected our corporate values. And I'll tell you this, I'm not going to name the nonprofit partner, but there was one that we tried that's very well known that we tried very diligently to work with. They did not respond for months on end. We wanted to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars with them. And in fact, we had a whole program where we would first start with them in one or two local markets and create a national program with them. We ended not going with them because they just were so unresponsive. They didn't have any systems in place. And it was one that would have been a great opportunity to help them expand their footprint in markets, which they weren't currently operating in, which was surprising someplace like Atlanta. Right. So I hear what you're saying and I agree. And I think it's really important for companies also from a, like you said, a brand from a reputational standpoint to vet their nonprofit partners in the same way they would vet any other vendor. That's right. Because they provide just as much opportunity for your name, your company's name, to be in the New York Times or the Washington Post expose. 100%. And you have to make sure that they can be a small company, they can be a small nonprofit, but do they have the values in which you would feel comfortable Working with and putting your name behind, right? Investing
1: all that money, and I think also think that that also speaks to the continued buy-in from your senior leaders. If you choose the wrong partner because you didn't do your research to ensure that they really were the partner to to really help make this work, and it fails, and now the company has given hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they see this fail. I've seen it where companies go, yeah, we need to pause on all that because that to them was a, a big waste. So that also impacts further work in helping other communities get what they need and the communities buy or the companies buy in and actually contributing those goals. So the more successful we are and the more benefit we see, the more our senior leaders go, yeah, let's keep doing that. We're seeing the benefit, not only to the community, but to us as a company and us being out there and helping to do good in the communities in which we exist in.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, but thank you so much, Cornell, for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. I know I found this conversation extremely informative as our listeners will as well. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.